chapter 11. This will be our last week in Mark for a short season. Next week, uh, Daniel will be opening up our Advent series through the Song of Mary. So the Song of Mary. We're going to be going through what is often labeled as the songs through the Advent series. Uh, so the Song of Mary, the Song of Zechariah, the Song of Simeon, the Song of the Angels. So we'll be taking four weeks in that. And then we'll pick up in Mark come January. We'll also have one week uh, in between there looking towards a new year that um, I've asked Myron to speak on. So he said he's going to confirm. <laughs> he's going to confirm that date on the 29th. So Mark chapter 11, we're going to be looking at Mark 11, verses 12 through 25 this morning. Have you ever, have you ever, uh, maybe you did this as a little kid or you've been with a little kid. You ever been with a little kid when they insist on eating a lemon? Right? So it's like, it, I mean, it's bright, it's yellow, it's juicy, it looks like fruit, you know, and, and you know, as a parent, you're just like, all right, go ahead, take a big bite. And, and you get that sour face and you say, ah, oh, this was, this was not what I was expecting. There, there's just times in our life that something looks so promising, but maybe so appealing, but then in the end, it's really not what it appeared to be. So I'm going to read this text right through, Mark 11, 12 through 25. I think it's important that we read this to get, uh, through together and, and maybe just don't break it up in segments. And we'll see why in a minute. Starting at verse 12. The next day, now again, this is right off the triumphal entry if you were here last week. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Um, and again, we'll see, this is actually the one time that we see the Lord speaking, doing a miracle that seems like what we might call a destructive miracle or a miracle of judgment. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, 
Go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, I, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. So we'd certainly pray that God blesses his word. This is, um, this is the second time, apparently, that Jesus did this. He did this. John, the Gospel of John chapter 2 tells us that he did this early in his ministry. Um, and it's really interesting. At, at another place in the Gospels, Jesus talks about a fig tree who wasn't bearing fruit and, and says uh, that they, he wanted that fig tree out, basically. And the gardener says, hey, give it another year and see if it bears fruit. So I, I purposely read this story altogether um, because what we see, Mark uses this technique that he's used before in which he brackets a story within another story. And so he brackets the story of what we call the, the, sometimes call the clearing out of the temple, or the cleansing of the temple, with this story of the fig tree. So clearly what Mark is telling us is that there's a connection between the two stories. So then we have to ask ourselves, what is the connection? So, so we think about the basic elements of the narrative. Jesus is hungry. Uh, they've gone out to Bethany. This is going to be their rhythm during the week. They're staying out in Bethany, just a couple miles from the city. Gone out to Bethany. Why is he hungry? I mean, he's probably staying in Martha's house. And if we know them, they probably had a good meal prepared. Maybe, maybe he wasn't at the house. Maybe he went out really early to pray. He sees a fig tree from a distance. And this fig tree uh, seems promising, even though it's admittedly out of season, just by a couple of months for fruit. And since it's without fruit, he curses the fig tree, telling it that it can't ever bear fruit again. No one else has to eat of its fruit. Jesus then goes to the temple in Jerusalem. He likely goes to the outer court of the Gentiles, which was just a huge area, the outer court of the temple. And he expels those who are buying and selling and exchanging money um, a, 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 along with people, verse 16 tells us, that are traveling through, some people would use that temple court as a shortcut from one place to another to the Mount of Olives and those that were traveling through with merchandise. So he really seems very disruptive here. So it's interesting when God is disruptive. And then on the way back to Bethany that evening... Peter notices what had seemed to be the formerly healthy fig tree is completely dead. It's withered all the way to its roots. And he's shocked by this. Lord, look! The tree that you cursed is withered to its roots. And then Jesus uses this withered fig tree as a lesson to drive home the power of prayer, the power of faith, the importance of forgiveness in our prayer. So the connections are obvious, right? So we say, Mark, you know, so you say, okay, yeah, clear as mud, right? Clear as mud. Mark, what are you doing here? Why, why, why is this story com connected? Why, and, and we see in other Gospels that they're laid side by side. But here, Mark encompasses what happens in the temple with a story 
of the fig tree. Michelle, by the way, it is super good to see you this morning. Super good. It's super good to see you this morning and your family. So. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you are welcome to buy the church as a house, as a house by the way. It's for sale. Um, so we have to ask in a story, um, how is it that Jesus, so the story just prior, we see Jesus come in, the, what we call the triumphal entry. They, they, right, they had right celebration, wrong motivation. We talked about last week. And he has this perfect foreknowledge of what's going to happen with this donkey's colt. He sends a couple guys, go get this donkey's colt. He knows exactly what's going to happen. So how is it that the same Jesus that has such perfect foreknowledge in other areas of the gospel, he actually knows what people are thinking, responds to what they're thinking. Here he seems stymied by when a fig tree should be or shouldn't be in season. What is going on here? Is he, uh, Katie Amig wrote uh, a paper that addressed this story a little bit, and he, she asked whether Jesus was just hangry. <laughs> Could Jesus, is, I mean, and, and again, that's, that's not where, but it almost appears that way. Jesus is just hangry. You've been hangry before, right? You, you know, you want, you know, you need a Snickers bar or whatever. You, you, you're, you're hungry, you get angry. One author actually wrote um, that Jesus' response, and I quote, is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. Wow. Is, that, is that true? <laughs> or is there something more? Uh, many Bible scholars see here what, what can be called, and I would agree with this for what it's worth, an acted out parable an acted out parable, that Jesus is demonstrating a lesson. He's using a visual aid. He has an opportunity. He's hungry. He sees this fig tree at a distance that seems promising, and he uses physical realities to point us to spiritual realities. Um, in the Old Testament, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, Israel is often related to a, a fig tree. Several times. Let me give you a couple. This is just a couple examples. Hosea chapter 9, verses 10, and then I'll jump to 16. He says, when I found Israel, this is God speaking, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Ephraim, and then in verse 16, he says, Ephraim is blighted, their roots withered, they yield no fruit. Micah chapter 7, verse 1. What misery is mine, I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. And then in Micah, as the verses go on in Micah chapter 7, it talks about the, the many sins that Israel was committing against the Lord. Um, Jesus sees this tree from afar. It appears lush. It appears fruitful from afar. It actually, it wouldn't have been totally strange to have some early figs on the tree, but it wasn't ready for harvest. But upon closer inspection... Um, it is what David Garland states as 
false advertising. False advertising. He found nothing but leaves. So imagine, imagine somebody gives you a big truck. Is it Chevy or Ford? Are we going Chevy or Ford? Right, whatever, I don't really care. Give me a Toyota. They last longer. So, um, okay, all right. So I I knew I was going to get that. Uh, give me a Honda? You know, yeah. So you, someone gives you a brand new truck, and it seems like it has all the bells and whistles, and it is shiny, and it is beautiful, and it has really big tires, and it's jacked up. See, I say this because I'm in Tioga County, right? So it's jacked up, and you're just dreaming about turning the 4x4 four four on and going on some muddy trail, and, and they just give you the keys and say, here, this baby is yours, and you're like, what? You go, and then you go in the truck, and everything's beautiful, and every, you, you put the key in the ignition, and you turn it, and nothing. I mean, not even a click. You know, press the brake, what's going on? And uh, upon further examination, you open the hood and there's no engine. There's no engine. You say, man, looks can be deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. So right after this, this cursing of this fig tree, Mark tells us that Jesus goes into the temple and it's the same temple that, remember, he had quietly inspected the night before. And we have to remember that the temple of Jerusalem was considered for Israel the epicenter, the epicenter of their spiritual life, the epicenter of God's presence. A special presence dwelled among Israel in the Holy of Holies. It was the place you'd go to the temple and you would sac make sacrifices and, and the high priest once a year would make the sacrifice of atonement for the forgiveness of sins. It was a place that represented reconciliation with God, where God and man could meet and be made, made, made right together and commune together and man could worship him. That's what the, the temple represented for God's people. And by all appearances, at least from a distance, the temple was a vibrant tree. It was, it was full of leaves. It, it was functioning in its religious purposes. Active, bustling, a lot of, act, a lot of, a lot of things going on, a lot, of, a lot of religious practices going on. But when you, when you looked closer, upon closer inspection, it had come to be a place of corrupt po political and religious power. Hmm. It had come to be a place of hollow religious practice. It had come to be a place that, that uh, did more in the exploiting and excluding of the foreigner and the outsider and the broken and the marginalized than it did welcoming. Hmm. Much has been made about the idea that Jesus here is cleansing the te temple of corruption and, and, and casting out those who, who are financially taking advantage, which was certainly happening, uh, the powerful who are certainly lining their pockets with the increase in the profits. And all this happened in the, the, like I said, the great outside court of the temple, which would later come to be known the court of the Gentiles because any non-Jew that was as far as they could go in the temple no non-Jew could actually enter into the fur further into the temple courts. 
So this was this hustle and this bustle and the, the, the smells and the sounds of this marketplace. It was all taking place in the court of the Gentiles, the only place that the Gentiles could come to worship. And I believe Jesus is here, what Malachi prophesied, the Lord coming into his temple like a refiner's fire. But, but, I, but as you really look into what's happening here, you say, is Jesus really coming just to cleanse the temple? It, 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 that would almost give us the impression that, that he's, he's just getting it back to its good working order. He's bringing it back to a place where it functions again in his purposes. Now, what you have to realize is that the court of the Gentiles is enormous. And Jesus comes in and clearly makes a memorable disruption. So much so that the chief priests hear about this and want to kill him. But what also seems to be the case, although it's not told to us explicitly, is that Probably not too long after this disruption, people picked up their money. The, the money changers picked up their money and straightened out their tables and probably, you know, sorted their animals. And what was that all about? And probably went about their work and commerce continued. And in fact, though the commotion was so great, they needed the money changers. Now, were they... Probably taking advantage of people, yes, but the money needed to be exchanged because when you came with your Roman pagan money, you couldn't use that in the temple. It had to be Jewish money, so you needed to exchange it. There needed to be sacrifices sold, animals sold, for the sacrifices. So you say, what, what, what was really accomplished? Jesus, what did you, what did you do there? Just, just go in there and make a commotion? Did you, did, what, what happened outside? The chief priests and, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin so mad at you and so threatened that now they want to kill you. I mean, did Jesus really believe that then and there, from that time forward, all corruption in the temple and, and all the disregard for the foreigner would cease? I don't think so. I don't think that's even the point. Instead, I believe Jesus came as the great prophet and as the Lord coming to his temple. John 2, it speaks of coming as a warning. Now I believe Jesus comes into the temple and he proclaims what the temple has become. And in so doing, he actually speaks judgment on the temple. Now follow me for a few minutes here. Jesus says, it is, hasn't it been written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. He makes two quotes. This is his first quote. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And what he's quoting out of is Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7. And in that context, it deals with the inclusion of the outsider. It deals with the promise of inclusion for those who now feel excluded from temple worship. Those who, who don't feel worthy or according to the law are not worthy. The foreigner, the outcast, 
those that physically um, aren't, aren't worthy or are unclean. It says this temple, this symbol of forgiveness, this symbol of reconciliation and connection with God, this symbol of being able to be bound again to God so you can worship Him, will be yours. I'll read a few verses out of Isaiah chapter 56. It says, let no foreigner, it says, and this is what the Lord says, what Yahweh says. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within, within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, guess what, folks, that's you, <laughs> unless I have a full-bred Jew here. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the, na the name of the Lord, and to worship him, and who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. If I could say it really simply, the outsider becomes the insider. The outsider becomes the insider. So you say, well, what of the insider? What of the insider? He says, hasn't it been written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he says, but you, you insiders, you have made it a den of robbers. Now, we tend to go to this idea, we say, well, that must mean that, that there was so much greed present and, that, and, and, and all the people that were coming were getting ripped off. So it, it was this den of robbers because all that thievery was taking place. And, and there may be part of that that is very true. But again, let's think about the context of that quote. It's in Jeremiah 7. And again, bear with me. I'm going to read a few verses out of Jeremiah 7. The, 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 word of the, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, which is the temple, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord. All you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, quote, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It says it three times. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you, did not, if you do not oppress the alien, right, the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods, to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place and in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. 
Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, right, this false god, and follow other gods you have not, not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, the temple of the Lord, which declares my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Okay, so now follow me. <laughs> this place is supposed to be a place, a house of prayer for all nations. And this, and, but the insider has made it a den of robbers. And what that means is that those people that are supposed to be the people of God, outside of that temple are going outside and doing whatever they want to do. They are lying and they're cheating and they're committing adultery and they're, and they're idolatrous. And they're taking advantage of the helpless and the widow and the orphan. They're doing all those things outside of the temple. That's how they're living their lives. Their lives are corrupt. But then they come in the temple and they say, Ah, what? We are safe. We are safe here. And they think they're safe because they're acting out their religion at the right place according to the rules at the right time. And they're standing in their confidence and their heritage and their religion. And at the same time, they're living these corrupt lives. And that's the essence of hypocrisy. And God says, so you have made my temple a den, a meeting place, a safe place for criminals. That's the context. Criminals who treat other un others unjustly, but think they're safe in their hollow religion instead of actually having changed hearts that lead to changed lives that treat others with love and justice. So the entire the temple system had become a charade, a religious show, a leafy fig tree that on the outside looked promising, that it was full of vitality, but it actually bore no fruit. No justice, no mercy, no loving kindness. It's what Isaiah spoke of for the Lord when he says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is made up only of rules taught by men. It was a religion that had no real power to save. So listen, the temple didn't just need to be cleansed. It needed to be destroyed, and it needed to be remade. There's a difference. And it needed, this needed to happen by the greater reality of everything the temple pointed to who is now in the temple. And Jesus is quoted to say, he said, destroy this temple, and I'll do what? Right, I'll raise it again in three days. So the next morning, Peter, they're, they're 
uh, gone back to Bethany, probably Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, and, and they're, they're coming back out, and, and Peter knows this fig tree, and he says, wow, Lord, look, the fig tree is withered to its roots. And, and then Jesus, um, Jesus teaches his disciples about the power of prayer and faith and, and faithful prayer and how forgiveness is, how important forgiveness is, is in all that. And, and, and you kind of can say, like, what? So, Lord, are you evading the actual meaning of what happened with the fig tree? And is it just an opportunity to share about prayer and, and to, to teach a few random lessons on prayer? Or, or could it be that it's pointing to a new and greater paradigm. That something new is being established in the new covenant of Jesus Christ's blood unto a new people. It's not going to be just Israel. They don't have uh, this, this exclusive, exclusive right to God. But it's going to be a new people formed in Jesus' name, a people of faith from every nation, tribe, people, and language. The outsiders welcomed in. So think about it for a minute. Jesus is contrasting a communion with God that's either effective or ineffective, right? That's what Jesus does. Look, the fig tree, wow, it's withered to its roots. It looked healthy yesterday, and now, according to your word, it's dead. And Jesus says, have faith, or if you have faith in God. And he contrasts effective and, or ineffective communion with God. Effective prayer is a prayer that can say to this mountain, he doesn't say a mountain, he says this mountain, and you kind of go, what, what mountain is he talking about? Is he talking about the Mount of Olives that they might be standing on? Is he talking about, can he see Herod's palace, that mountain? Is he talking about the Temple Mount? You could say to this mountain, go, throw yourself in the sea, and the sea that they could see would be the Dead Sea, and nothing, nothing lives there. Nothing survives there. Go throw that mountain into the sea, and it will obey you. He says, such effective prayer is born of faith, what? Faith, faith, two words, what? In God. Faith in God. It is born of faith in God. It's not polluted by doubt. So we can conclude then that ineffective prayer is prayer that has faith in that which is misplaced. So I have faith in my self-merit. I have faith in my heritage. Maybe because I grew up in the church or I grew up in a Christian family or I, I grew up as an American or what have you. I grew up uh, as an Israelite. It has, it has a misplaced faith. It has faith in religious practice. It has faith in what we might call the temple system. But it's a leafy tree that bears no fruit Effective prayer is also prayer that is mindful of my relationship not only with God, but with who? My fellow man. So ineffective prayer then is prayer that believes I can treat others any way I want. Listen to this. Ineffective prayer is prayer that believes I can treat others any way I want. With injustice, I can harbor bitterness and be unforgiving. But because I pray at just the right religious place, at just the right religious time, in just the right religious way, I'm going to be heard. 
R. Allen Cole says, we have no inherent right to be heard by God. All is his grace and his undeserved favor. But unless we forgive our fellow man freely, it shows that we have no consciousness of the grace we ourselves need. And so it shows that we are expecting to be heard on our own merits, which cannot be. Now again, I, I, clearly when we come into these passages, Jesus isn't saying that you can pray and receive whatever you want, right? God can't grant you anything outside of his will, his perfect will, his perfect character. One author illustrated, I just appreciated this simple picture. He illustrated it like if you're in a little, you're in a little uh, ship, a little uh, fishing boat and you're coming near the shore and you throw, prayer is like that little boat hook that you would throw to the shore. And when you throw that boat hook to the shore, that prayer, you're not expecting to pull the great shore into you. You're, you're pulling yourself into the great shore. And, and that's what prayer should be doing. Prayer should be pulling us toward the will of God, not trying to pull God toward our will. Walter Wessel writes that God's omnipotence concerning prayer, God's omnipotence, his all-powerfulness is prayer's sole assurance, and God's sovereignty, right, his perfect dominion is prayer's only restriction. But the people of Israel generally thought that the most powerful and effective prayer happened in the confines of the temple. That's where the Holy of Holy was, Holies were. That, that's where sacrifices were made. But Jesus, we'll see later in Mark 13, Jesus says this temple is going to be destroyed. You're not going to see one stone standing on another. And in AD 70, that ex exact thing happened. It's going to be like that dead fig tree. The greater reality, that which the temple pointed to, was among them. The one in which we experience the presence of God, the one in, in, by which forgiveness is actually available, the one that in which we find reconciliation with God and communion with God and worship, Jesus is all those things. And then get this. When Jesus accomplishes all that the temple pointed to, and he dies for sin, risen again over death, sends his Holy Spirit among his people, in his people. He says to us, he's in 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? 2 Corinthians 6.16, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Hebrews 3.6, Christ, Jesus Christ, right, is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are God's house. Wow. This is God's goal. Not that there would be a religious system, not that there would be a building to say, that's the building we need to go to, but that God would truly dwell with us in us. And Jesus, being the faithful son over God's house, is still proclaiming, my house, this people, my house will be called a, a, a house of prayer for all nations. And what type of prayer, what type of communion with God must this be? David Garland, again, he puts it, he says, it's based on faith in God that overcomes insurmountable odds. It's sustained by grace, and it's characterized by forgiveness. So as we wrap up here, 
I think we too need to be careful not to be the fig tree. Not, not, to, not to be giving all the appearance of life, all the appearance of vitality, all the appearances of the temple, all the religious activity, all the right things at the right time, saying the right things, right practices, in the right places, but yet, at closer inspection, being false advertising, devoid of any real fruit, any real love for God, any real love for, God's, for, for people, any, any real justice and mercy and faithfulness. There are mountains that need to be removed. And there are mountains that will only be removed through sincere faith in a sincere living God. We don't move them. It will be done for us when we petition him in faith. But they're not often the mountains that we imagine. I, I think more often than not, they're the things that hinder our effectiveness, our closeness to God, our effectiveness in the advancement of his kingdom. They're the things that, whether it be individually as a church, tend to be the sins that so easily entangle of hypocrisy, of apathy, of division, of the lack of faith, of corruption, of lovelessness, of bitterness, of injustice, of neglect for the marginalized, all, all masked in hollow religion. So I think we need to be asking, Lord, what mountains need to be removed? What mountains do we need to, need to be removed? What mountains need to be thrown into the Dead Sea that they would live no more? Because Jesus didn't just come to reform the temple. He didn't come just to clean it up. He came to fulfill it, destroy it, remake it in himself and in his people. And if I can go this far, Jesus didn't come just to reform you. He did not come just to clean you up and make you a little bit better person. He came that the death in you, the corruption in you, the thing that separates you from God, the religiousness of you that says, I can do this on my own, I can connect myself back to God, and all those things you do on your own merit, that it would be destroyed and then remade and then resurrected. that that leafy, false advertising fig tree must die so that a that bears real fruit would be resurrected. Maybe he does that in our churches sometimes. There's something that needs to be destroyed, not just for destruction's sake, but so something reborn can come out of it. And this never happens through religion. It only happens through a real connection with God through Christ. And in that place, as we anchor ourselves to that shore and, and draw our boat closer and closer to God, it, it, we must hear Jesus as that father who came to the Lord with his demon-possessed son. He said, if you can, Lord, if you can, have pity on us. If you can do anything, help us. And remember what the Lord said. He said, if you can, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Let's pray. Father God, I just felt 
as I was thinking of this and dwelling on this and praying about this, that I, I should pray what seems and feels to me a dangerous prayer. But I, I pray it because I trust you. And I trust in your goodness. And I trust, Lord God, that you never just destroy, but you destroy unto new life. So we pray, Lord God, that, that where we need to be destroyed, that you would do so. Where things need to die, that they would die. Whether it be in ourselves, Lord God, the things that we hold on to, our own merit, our, our own sin, whether it be in our church, Lord God, our own practices, our own ways, our own strategies. Lord, where you need to destroy, destroy. But I pray that you only do it by your grace so that there would be resurrection. That there would be new life. That the, that the leafy tree that really bore no fruit would die. So that a tree that would bear much fruit for you would live. We pray these things, as I said, trusting and believing in your name that we would experience the power of prayer and the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection in Jesus' name. Amen.